and concentration in our prayer. And that's, that's our fallen flesh. That's, that's the world's influence on our prayer life. But God has graciously taken care of that wandering mind, the wandering thoughts, by manifesting himself clearly in his word. He's shown himself truthfully in his word. He puts his word before us, and he even calls us in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. In this church, at least in this local church, the one thing that, that I can say in all um, honesty is that we will not compromise with the authoritative word of God in our teaching, in our preaching, in our prayer, in our church's direction, and it's got to be so. God says in Psalm 138, he says, I have held my word higher than my name. Think about that. What does that tell us? The Lord has declared that he is the object that we are to fix our mind's eye upon for our faith, our hope, and our prayer. Listen to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. The focus of our prayer, the focus of our life is in Jesus. And that's what David is pinning down here in this first verse. Jeremiah pins down the words of the Lord in Jeremiah 33, 3. He says, call to me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you do not know. That's the faithfulness of our God. Who is attentive to a prayer of crying. And I don't mean crying in emotion as if it was, um, you know, just in times of catastrophe. But I mean, opening your heart in praise and in prayer and being real with your God. This is the great privilege of the Christian that we have been granted by the Holy Spirit. And that's the ability to look, like it says in Hebrew chapter 12, to look to the Holy One, Jesus Christ, looking down, listening, feeling, and preparing to answer when we cry in earnestness and honesty. Take, well, you remember um, Stephen, right, who was stoned in the book of Acts, chapter 7. He was stoned at the end of, book, of, of the book of that chapter, I'll say. He was stoned at the end of that chapter for sharing his gospel, for pleading who Jesus Christ was in spirit and in truth. And as he was stoned, he was on his knees, and he looks up and he says, I see the heavens opened, and I see the Son of Man standing to the right hand of the Father. Standing. He hears our prayer, and Jesus Christ is the intercessor for that prayer. Paul's conversion, 
And maybe this will make it more intimate in understanding um, Christ interceding in our heart of prayer. Paul and his conversion, right? On the way to Damascus. This is Acts chapter 9. On his way to Damascus. The glory of the Lord shines down, knocks him off his donkey. He sits down. You know, or gets knocked down, right? And Christ says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now Christ was resurrected in heaven. This isn't the bodily Christ. These are the followers of Jesus Christ, the sheep of his flock. And Christ counts it as if he was persecuting me. Do you see the personal attachment there? In, time of, in times of trouble, let's not let our thoughts roam or wander as though we're looking for someone to tell our heart's needs to. In times of need, let us fix our heart on Jesus as David did. For happy is the man who knows that when trouble comes, he cannot be bewildered or confused no matter how heavy the trouble may be. Even when sorrow-stricken, this man has his resource and he knows it and he will avail himself to it. This is no vague theory of the sympathy of God towards man. This is the evidence of this man's personal knowledge of God in experience. Verse 1 says, O Lord my rock. It's to you I will cry, O Lord my rock. This cry is directed toward the immutable Jehovah, the immovable foundation of all our hope and our refuge in time of trouble. And as I was doing some research about this term, O Lord my rock, and what it meant to some of the saints of old, okay, I ran across a, a bunch of, of quotes concerning this context in Psalm 28, and I want to read this to you. The Reverend John Reese of Crown Street, Soho, London, was visited on his deathbed by the Reverend John Leafchild, who very seriously asked him to describe the state of his mind. This appeal to the honor of his religion roused him and so freshened his dying lamp that raising himself up in his bed, he looked his friend in the face and with great deliberation, energy, and dignity uttered the following words, Christ in his person, Christ in the love of his heart, and Christ in the power of his arm, is the rock on which I rest, and now, reclining his head gently on the pillow, death strike. What wonderful um, confidence in Jesus Christ as his rock, the immovable, unshakable Jehovah. He says in verse 1, Do not be silent to me, lest if you are silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Do not be silent to me. You see, this cry that's to, O Lord, my rock, can't be just mere religiosity, mere formalism in prayer. Because formalism in, in, in prayer, you guys, may be content without answers. But the genuine pleading of a heart that is crying must go further to obtain actual replies from heaven.
When God seems to close his ear, we must not close our mouths, but rather cry with more earnestness. If we persist, he will not deny our hearing for long. In Luke chapter 11, right after Christ was teaching what we know as the model prayer or the Lord's prayer in chapter 11, right after that in verse 5, Christ makes a point of this and he said to them, which of you shall have a friend and go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me on this, on his journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within and say, do not trouble me. The Lord is now, or sorry, the door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give to you. I say to you, Though he will not rise and give to him because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence he will rise and give him as many as he needs. Luke 18. Then he spoke a parable to them in verse 1. That men always ought to pray and not lose heart, saying, There was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him saying, Get justice for me from my adversary. And he would not for a while. But afterwards he said within himself, Though I do not fear God, fear God, nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. Then the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said. And shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you, that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Verse 1 says, Lest if you are silent to me, this is back in Psalm 28, sorry. Lest if you are silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. You see, just the thought of the Lord becoming forever silent to our prayers provoked David to plea and to reason with God. If we were deprived of the God who answers prayer, David's fear is that we would soon sink to the same level as those lost in hell. We must have answers to prayer for our cases of dire necessity as we look in context. And we trust the Lord can never find it in his heart to permit his own chosen and elect to perish. Another quote I want to read to you guys, and this, this touched me deeply this was written somewhere in the early 1700s so you're going to see some these and thous in this thing but concerning this verse lest if you are silent to me i become like those who go down to the pit this guy writes thou seest great god my sad situation nothing to me is greater or desirable on this earth but the felicity of serving thee and yet the misery of my destiny and the duties of my state bring me into connection with men who regard all godliness as a thing to be censured and derided. With secret horror, I daily hear them blaspheming the ineffable gifts of thy grace and ridiculing the faith and fervor of the godly as mere imbecility of mind. Exposed to such impiety, all my consolation, O oh my God, is to make my cries of distress ascend to the foot of thy throne. Although for the present these sacrilegious blasphemies only awaken in my soul emotions of horror and pity, yet I fear that at last they may enfeeble me and seduce me into a crooked course of policy unworthy of thy glory and of the gratitude which I owe to thee. 
I fear that insensibly I may become such a coward as to blush at thy name, such a sinner as to resist the impulses of thy grace, such a traitor as to withhold my testimony against sin, such a self-deceiver as to disguise my criminal timidity in the name of prudence. Already I feel that this poison is insinuating itself into my heart. For while I would not have my conduct resemble that of the wicked who surround me, yet I am too much biased by the fear of giving them offense. I dare not imitate them, but I am almost as much afraid of irritating them. I know that it is impossible both to please a corrupt world and a holy God, and yet I so far lose sight of this truth, that instead of sustaining me in decision, it only serves to render my vacillation the more inexcusable. What remains for me but to implore thy help? Strengthen me, O Lord, against these declensions so injurious to thy glory, so fatal to the fidelity which is due to thee. Cause me to hear thy strengthening and encouraging voice. If the voice of thy grace be not lifted up in my spirit, reanimating my feeble faith, I feel that there is but a step between me and despair. I am on the brink of the precipice. I am ready to fall into the criminal complicity with those who would fain drag me down with them into the pit. Wow. Now, you know what, guys? Um, that emotion that this guy had penned down concerning this, that if I don't hear God, that you have heard my supplications. I don't necessarily need to know, I don't need to know the answer, but I need to know that you heard me. Without that, David's fear is that he would fall. The heart desires that God would speak. We want him to let us know that he hears us, not only by faith, but by God's having spoken to us on the very subject which we have been pleading with him. Let it be enough for us to say to ourselves, God knows it, God has in point of fact told me so, therefore I'm in peace. We trust him. But we need to know that he's heard. We need to know that he's heard the cry of our pleading heart. Verse 2 says, Hear the voice of my supplications when I cry to you, when I lift up my hands toward your holy sanctuary. Verse 2, in, in just looking at it from the outside, looks real similar to verse 1, with one real important difference that I can see. Verse 2 says, hear the voice of my supplications. Which means he's not just talking about the present cry and need that David has penned down in Psalm 28 that he's pleading for. But has to do with all future supplications and needs also. We cannot be put off with a refusal when we are in the spirit of prayer. We labor, we persist, and persevere, we agonize in prayer until a hearing is granted us. Now, does that sound like my prayer? I had to ask myself. Do I, when I lay my life before the cross of Christ, do I look like this? Do I labor? Do I persist? Do I persevere? Do I agonize? Because I know in times past when I have, the Lord was there. He was not only there listening and not only allowed me to know that he hears my prayer, he was present in that time of circumstance. We've seen this. All of us here have seen this just this week. 
We've prayed for circumstances. We've prayed for things. And we've seen God move in power, in compassion, and in love. And we need that because that grows our faith. That's how we step off the boat, onto the water as Peter did when Christ says come. When we know we're incapable, when we know we have no ability or resources to do what he's called us to do, we trust because he's been faithful in our past to answer. It says in verse 2, hear the voice of my supplications. The word supplications in the plural shows the number, the continuance, and the variety of a good man's prayer. The expression, hear the voice of my supplications, seems to hint that there is an inner meaning, inner meaning or heart voice about which David was more concerned about than his audible public voice in, in public prayer. Now we are a church, those of you that have been around this church, we are a church of public prayer. We love that. The Lord loves that. But here's my conviction. Is it my heart voice that is springing up from the inside that's coming out in words? Or am I just saying what I think needs to be said for the time being? David was more concerned about um, hearing the voice of my supplications by this inner voice, by the inner emotions and spirit of the man that's praying. Verse 2 says, Hear the voice of my supplications when I cry out to you, when I lift up my hands toward your holy sanctuary. I'm going to back up to you guys and have you just picture... Um, Moses' time, okay, in the Old Testament, as he's taken the nation of Israel out of Egypt to follow the Lord, wandering in the wilderness, right, for 40 years. And with them, he had a picture as he got on, on uh, Mount Sinai, as he got at the Mount of Horeb, he got um, a picture of what the heavenly tabernacle was to look like. And that's what they built as a worship place that they carried around them from place to place to place and reset up. In this tabernacle, it had an outer court, okay, of which was the laver that you washed your hands in ritually. It was the place where the um, lampstands were. It was the place where the incense was offered. And then inside that was an inner sanctuary, a place that the Bible calls the Holy of Holy that was separated by a veil. And not just a veil like you would think um, a thin lacy, see-through kind of thing. If you really do the research on this, in the Hebrew, it sounds to me like a very, very heavy, heavy fabric. And I mean heavy and thick. This is something you just go and go walking through accidentally. And what that did is that separated the place where the Shekinah glory dwelt. This is where God dwelt inside this inner sanctuary. And when you walked into that inner sanctuary, which the priest only were able to do once a year, to offer up sacrifices for his sin and the sin of the people, in there you had the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant, you had the mercy seat. And overshadowing the mercy seat, you had cherubim with wings that covered and stretched covering the place of God. And on this mercy seat was sprinkled the blood of the sacrifices. 
And every time you see this mercy seat, understand that the blood sprinkling of that sacrifice on the mercy seat where God dwelt is the picture of the cross of Christ. Where he offered himself up as the holy, spotless, sinless lamb of God for our sin. So this holy place, this lifting up your hands toward the holy sanctuary in verse 2 is the early representation of Christ and his work on the cross. Uplifted hands, which have been since the beginning of of the written um, words in the Bible, have always been a form of devout posture, reaching upwards toward God with readiness and eagerness to receive the blessing sought after. And in this church, you're going to see hands raised And it isn't religiosity. It isn't formalism. What it is, is not worrying about what your neighbor thinks next to you and worshiping God in a a heartfelt spirit that desires to give him praise. With the empty hands of beggars, we lift them towards the mercy seat of Jesus, for that's where our expectation dwells. As we press into the throne room of God with hands raised, may we also possess possess hearts that are contrite. That's got to go hand in hand. In Psalm 51, in David's uh, penitent psalm, there's in verse 17 says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Verse 3 says, do not take me away with the wicked. We understand that the wicked will be taken away to hell. David fears that being in their company, he would be drawn also to their doom. And without hearing that God hears, what David's fear is that he would eventually slide back into the world, that he needed that strength and support of God reaching into his life, saying, listen, I hear you. And he fears that being in their company, he would slide. And this fear is an appropriate one for all godly followers of Christ. The wicked are dangerous company and would make terrible companions for eternity. We must avoid them in their pleasures, that we would not be bound with them in their miseries. It doesn't mean we don't love them. It doesn't mean that we can't hate sin, yet love the sinner. 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. We just need to be watchful. It says in verse 3, And with the workers of iniquity. It says, Do not take me away with the wicked and with the workers of iniquity. And these are the overtly sinful. Those whose lifestyle is defined by being opposed to God and their judgment is sure. It also says, do not take me away from the wicked and with the workers of iniquity who speak peace to their neighbors, but evil is in their hearts. These are they which have learned the manner of the place to which they are going. When you look at who speak peace to their neighbors, but evil in their hearts, that is a lie. That is the description or the definition of a liar. Where did that come from? 
You know, in John chapter 8, verse 44, as Christ is speaking to the Pharisees, he talks to them as he's, I won't say condemning them, but he's getting on them, right? He says, you are of your father the devil and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources for he is a liar and the father of it. It is a sure sign of wickedness when the tongue and the heart do not line up. The godly man can't stomach hypocrisy. His heart and his tongue must match. When God has saved us from the sinful lifestyle that we formerly walked in and he reached down from the heavens and he planted his spirit deep inside of us, there was a change. The God who opened his mouth and created the heavens and the earth with a word, who took his very spirit and put it deep in you, there is a change. And the tongue and the heart have got to line up because that's who God's spirit is who lives and dwells and reigns in you. Romans 12 verse 9 says, Let love be without hypocrisy. Counterfeit friendship is a lie. Jesus was acutely aware of hypocrisy. In fact, it was predicted or prophesied of his coming in Psalm 41 verse 9 where it says, even my own familiar friend in whom, I, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Speaking of Judas Iscariot, right? It goes further to say in Psalm 55, verse 12, it says, For it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me who has exalted himself against me, then I could hide from him. But it was you, a man my equal, my companion, and my acquaintance. We took sweet counsel together and walked in the house of God in the throng, which means arm in arm. And we know what Jesus Christ's betrayal was. In fact, in Luke's account, in uh, chapter 22, verse 48, I think it is, Judas came up when he brought, when he met Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, and Judas went forward to give Christ a kiss, which was the indicator that this is the man that needs to be arrested. And Christ looked at Judas Iscariot and he said, Are you betraying me with a kiss? Take a look at Matthew chapter 23 when you get a chance, and we don't have time this morning. And take a look at Christ's feelings of hypocrisy. You'll see it written in there and preached against as he's talking to the religious people, religious people of that time. And you'll see it spoken against maybe nine times in that chapter. Verse 4. Verse 4 says, give them according to their deeds and according to the wickedness of their endeavors. Give them according to the work of their hands. Render to them what they deserve. And when we view the wicked as such, just as wicked, then we grow to hate evil and champion justice. In fact, it says in Psalm 97.10, it says, you who love the Lord hate evil. 
But we have to take that wickedness and we have to separate it. In order to look at it that way, we have to separate it from our fellow man who needs the redeeming power of the blood of Jesus Christ in their lives. As followers of Christ, we don't yearn for vengeance, but rather transformation of sinners. And even Christ, when he was talking uh, to James and John on the road as he was heading back to Jerusalem, you know, the final time, and it's in Luke chapter 9. As he was going through Samaria, he set his face towards, towards Jerusalem, it says. And apparently Christ wasn't treated real well as he was not um, planning on staying there with, with, in Samaria. And so James and John said, hey, would you like us to, to pray that fire be cast down and consume these people like Elijah did? And you remember what Christ said? I better flip to it so I know what I remember. Uh, chapter 9, he said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. This is verse 55. Verse 56 says, For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. So, so putting all that together in verse 4, I know that David's not praying for vengeance. That's not of Christ. So how do we look at that? How do we look at Psalm, or Psalm 28, verse 4, and kind of look that in, in true context? And I think probably the truer meaning as we look at verse 4, as it says, give them according to their deeds and according to the wickedness of their endeavors. I believe verse 4 would be, uh, the truer version of looking at verse 4 would be to look at it as a prophetic or a future tense declaring a fact. See, remember, the Lord looks at our endeavors and takes them as facts. He takes our will for the deed, according to the Sermon on the Mount, and he punishes or rewards us accordingly. Not according to their lying words, but after the measure of their wicked deeds will the Lord issue vengeance to those that refuse him. I think David here in verse 4 pleads not so much his own cause, but the cause of God. See, God must hate sin because he's holy. God must punish sin because he is righteous. And the only covering we have is the blood of Christ shed from the cross, wrapping us in those white robes of Christ's righteousness that we might be able to come into the presence of a pure and holy God to worship him in his presence. Without Christ's righteousness, we are truly condemned. Verse 5 says, Because they do not regard the works of the Lord, nor the operation of his hands, he shall destroy them and not build them up. You see, God works in creation. Nature overflows with proofs of his wisdom and his goodness. Yet atheists refuse to see him. God works in providence, ruling and overruling, his hand powerfully manifest in human history, yet the fool will not discern him. He works in grace. Remarkable conversions are seen everywhere, yet the ungodly refuse to see the operation of the Lord's hands. Where angels wonder, the carnal man despises. 
let us always be attentive and diligent to continue to press into Christ's word and his work, lest we slide into disobedience. Now the psalm starts changing in verse 6. It says, Blessed be the Lord, because he has heard the voice of my supplications. We as saints are a blessed people, and we are a blessing people. But our very best blessings, the fat of our sacrifices, we reserve for the Lord Jesus Christ. The psalm was a petition and a prayer until now. And now it turns into praise. It says, blessed be the Lord. It has been said that those who pray well will soon, will soon praise well. Prayer and praise, it said, are the two lips of the soul that sing out sweet and acceptable music to the ears of God. Verse 6 says, because he has heard the voice of my supplications. You see, real and intense praise is established upon sufficient and constraining reasons. It's not just irrational emotion. Emotion. It's not just because we get the fuzzy wuzzies and we need to pray or praise. Real heartfelt praise is because God moves and he's heard and he acts and he cares and he's compassionate. And we know he's there and he deserves our praise. It rises out of the depth of experience. Answered prayer should be acknowledged with the, most, with the utmost gratitude and thanksgiving. And that's where I fall. And maybe you guys have thought about this too, but how often does God move in our lives? How often does he, does he answer prayer? How often does he move in the midst of the little things of our lives? And time goes by and we take it for granted. Even wanting to acknowledge him, we forget. And the daily um, busyness of our lives just take us away where we can't do that. I tried one time to outrun the grace of God by acknowledging everything that he did. I woke up one morning, you guys, this was, uh, I don't know, three, four years ago. And at work, I was praying and I promised God that I was going to acknowledge and thank him and be grateful for every little tiny thing he was going to do all the day long. And I started off strong, right? I prayed, you guys, I started off strong. God was moving. He was moving in circumstances and, and in my business, in, in shipping and in customers and in just things coming together. And I was acknowledging him and thanking him and thanking him. And he kept pouring it on and, and on. And I could not keep up. The coolest thing, I tried. I tried to do that. I tried to run up with him. It's, it's not possible. And I don't think he wants us to be there. Otherwise, we'd be in a place where we maybe feel like we earned something. I don't know. His grace pours out way more than we can acknowledge. And we need to understand that. But we do need to acknowledge. We don't want to be um, the one leper, the, the nine lepers. Remember the ten lepers that were saved by Christ? And they walked away and only one of them that was a Samaritan came back to give him gratitude and thanksgiving. 
We don't want to be the nine. God is moving in your lives, guys. He's moving in my life. Thank him for that. Save those precious um, moments of praise and pour it out. Pour it out upon him. The Lord employs his power on our behalf and infuses his strength into us in our weakness. Remember what the Lord told Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12? He said, my grace is sufficient for you. And my strength is made perfect in your weakness. David has found in, where are we at? Verse 7, he has found his sword and his shield in his God. The Christian warrior sheltered by the Lord is far more safe than any hero dressed in battle gear. And let me read verse 7 just to recap because I kind of skipped over it. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusted in him and I am helped. Therefore my heart greatly rejoices and with my song I will praise him. This is the declaration that David desires to shout from the rooftops. This is the confession of his faith paired together with the testimony of his experience. The Lord is my strength inwardly, he is saying, and he's my shield outwardly. Faith finds both these in Jesus Christ and never one without the other. He says in verse 7, my heart trusted in him and I am helped. Heart work is always sure work and heart trust in Jesus is never disappointed. He says, therefore, my heart greatly rejoices and with my song, I will praise him. The heart is mentioned twice in this verse. First, the heart trusts, and then the heart rejoices. If you look at verse 7, David declares the truth of, the, of his faith and of his joy. He also uses the word greatly to magnify the joy which he sings praise. And when the heart is glowing, the lips should not be silent. This is why we sing. This is why we do worship at the close of our service and at the opening of our service is because when lips or when the heart is glowing, the lips should not be silent. And even if you're like me, you guys, who loves to make a joyful noise, but I'm telling you, it doesn't come out in tune and it's a good thing it's loud in here because, you know, I haven't been gifted with that, but we need to sing. We need to sing from a heart voice that just desires to praise him. It says in verse 8, the Lord is their strength. In some of the versions, it says the Lord is the strength of his people. You see, the heavenly experience of one believer is a pattern of the life of all. To all the militant church without exception, God is exactly the same as he was to his servant David. You see, what we see in the Psalms that's going on with David's life now, with the cry and the plea and the desire not to fall into wickedness and the desire to praise his holy name when answers to that prayer is heard, all of that movement of God in David's life is the same movement that is available in our lives. And we need to understand that it's not just for the past David-only kind of experience. This is for us here and now. You see in Hebrews chapter 13, 
verse 8. It's quoted in there. It says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. He is the same. His blessings are the same. He desires us to cry the same way. And he will answer and move in the same way. And we will praise in the same way. You see, we need the same aid and we shall have it. We are loved by the same love. We are written in the same book of life. And we are one with the same anointed head as David was. It says, and he is the saving refuge of his anointed Here David is the picture of our Lord Jesus, our covenant head, our anointed prince through whom all blessings come. It is Jesus who has achieved full salvation for us and we desire saving strength from him. Verse 9 says, Save your people and bless your inheritance. Shepherd them up also and bear them up forever. David's psalm turns to after his cry and after his pleading, after he's saying, Lord, hear my supplications, after he said, Lord, don't allow me to, be, to, to fall or to slide because of your silence to me, his prayer is answered. God says, look, your prayer has been heard, and he praises him, and he lifts him up, and he magnifies the name of Jesus, and then he turns his prayer to praying for the church worldwide, for the nations And this is what God has put on the heart of this church now here, is that we pray for the nations. He says, save your people. This is a prayer for Christ's warrior church. We must pray for the whole church and not ourselves alone. Lord, please deliver them from their enemies, preserve them from their sins, bear them up under their troubles, rescue them from their temptations and ward off from them every ill. He says, bless your inheritance. Revive, refresh, enlarge, and sanctify your church. Remember Jesus' words in Matthew 25. As he's he's on his throne, and it's a magnificent picture of his majesty. And he separates the goats and the sheep. And he says to the sheep on his right hand, he says, Come, you blessed of my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of the world. As we get ready to close, worship team, if you want to come on up. Verse 9 says, Shepherd them also. Lord, feed your flock, supply their bodily and spiritual needs. By your word and statutes, direct, rule, sustain, and satisfy the sheep in your hands. And it says, and bear them up forever. Carry them in your loving arms. Lift them into heaven that they may worship you face to face. Elevate their minds and their thoughts. Make them heavenly and conform them into the very image of Christ. When, I remember when David and Carrie had an opportunity to visit us, um, uh, missionaries who were here for a while for their son's wedding um, from Myanmar. When we had him come to our church on that Wednesday night, and I don't know how many of you guys were here that, that night, but he said one of the great verses that he looks at 
all the time as a missionary and the calling of each one of us in our lives is Revelations chapter 12, verse 11. And in that verse, the Lord says, they will overcome him, being the enemy, being Satan. They will overcome him by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their sacrifice, the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. Let's pray.